Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here today with Associate Professor Dr. Derek Mallett. Dr. Mallett, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, you are in the uh, Department of Military History, but you're also located at one of our satellite campuses. So if you could explain to us, by, by way of beginning, uh, where you kind of fit within the DMH family. Yeah, so, the, so yeah, I'm at the Fort Belvoir Satellite Campus, and the satellites um, really serve um, a lot of the students who... We get a lot of medical students, we get a lot of FAOs, um, a lot of um, lawyers, um, special forces guys sometimes, a lot of groups that maybe their commander doesn't, they don't want to give them up for a, a full year cycle. And so, or there are people that don't need, a lot of them don't need AOC. And so they can come to, uh, especially in the capital region like Belvoir, they can come to Belvoir for four months and then go back to their to their position. So a lot of them are already, I mean, I, you know, a lot of times we have half to two-thirds or more of our students already live in the capital region anyway, and they just take four months off, so to speak, and come to Belvoir and then go back to wherever they... Okay. They, they and for those of us who aren't familiar with kind of the geography of the military, for Belvoir is... Belvoir is just south of uh, D.C. Okay. All right, so we are, like I say, just on the south part of the capital area. All right. Okay. So uh, before we kind of dive more deeply into this, tell us a little bit about your academic background. Well, I have a, a PhD in history from Texas A&M. So and I, I, I went to A&M simply, honestly, because um, the guy that I wanted to work with did. I have an interest in prisoners of war, and this was the guy that had written. I think his book is still probably the landmark book in German POWs in America. And so he was the person I wanted to work with. So I went to AM and then that was what's that's what's my research has been in, largely has been POW issues, mostly Second World War. Okay. And in addition to the the classes that, that we all kind of teach, the, the core and AOC, uh, what else do you do within the CGSC curriculum? So at, at Belvoir, we do offer uh, a small number of electives. Now at a satellite, it works a little bit different because we don't have a dedicated time for electives like Leavenworth does. So our satellites are, basically they have to be the students who really want that extra, uh, who are willing to, to take on an extra workload because they're in the afternoons through the regular um, CGSOC term. So I teach um, the genocide prevention elective. Actually, it's in um, collaboration with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Okay. To be honest, the, the museum staff actually does most of the teaching for the course. So my title would more correctly be probably administrator <laughs> than actual teacher. of record. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, it, is a great, it is a great course, though, and it's um, something the students, I think, all the students that take it usually uniformly say it was a great experience. I mean, the museum does a fantastic job. About, I mean, it's four class meetings, so the students get a, a one credit on the transcript. But in those class meetings, about half of that is history. So we spend a, a fair amount of time, about half the time, talking about the Holocaust, largely. Um, and then they'll get to more modern issues like Rohingya and Myanmar and things like that. Um, but they also bring in speakers from USAID, State Department, and others that work. Uh, things like the Early Warning Project, where they're, they're monitoring places in the world where they're 
there's factors in play that may lead to a potential genocide. And so they bring the students in on that, and they, and they get these outside speakers. And then usually at the end, they have a Holocaust survivor that comes and speaks about their experience, too. So it's, it's really, I mean, it's not the, uh, you know, the most... Um, Feel good. It's not the feel-good elective of the year, right. but it's a really important topic, and it's really compelling. Uh, again, I think the students really, the ones that have taken it, really have gotten a lot out of it. So. Yeah, and, and you're, you're getting at kind of where I'm headed with my next question, which is, as you mentioned, a lot of your students are, are kind of local anyway, um, and you have access to all of the museums and resources and military resources in the, in the, the district area. Um, how is, what advantage is that to you as a historian and researcher? Well, I mean, is it just in my own personal research? Of course, it's outstanding, right? <laughs> Delighted to uh, to move to you know Belvoir because um, as a Second World War largely researcher, most of all the records I wander at the National Archives too, which is in College Park, Maryland, which is just essentially on the other side of town for me. And so, if I have the opportunity on a Saturday, or if it's a day I can you know get away from the office, it's just a matter of fighting DC traffic to get to to get to College Park, and then I've got access to all this stuff. Um, it also lends itself potentially, and I'm working on this. I've only been at Belvoir at this point um, for a short time, but I'm, I'm working on um, trying to build relationships with. I mean, there, again, there's so many great history sites there, uh, and of course, the Museum of the U.S. Army is a, a, almost a stone's throw from from our um, our site on Belvoir. So, I've already uh, we take students over to the Army Museum at times trying to work out a relationship with them. And then Mount Vernon actually is pretty close, too. Mm-hmm. It's actually, we have an elective on the books. It's not one that I've taught, but about, like, leadership lessons of George Washington. And, again, with Mount Vernon, that you can really right. drive out one, one gate of Belvoir, and you're you're looking at, uh, at um, like, the grist mill for Mount Vernon. So right, it's right. It's right that close. It's that close. So. Yeah, and you're also proximate to a good number of, of colonial sites, uh, colonial warfare sites, independence war sites, and civil war sites. Absolutely, which of course lends itself to some great staff ride opportunities, and so mm-hmm. those are also things that we try to or, yeah. or try to offer as a, at least at least on a voluntary basis. Meet on a Saturday, and you know you'll get eight, ten, twelve, sixteen students that want to go to Chancellorsville or you know wh- whichever whatever you you want to do that yeah, term. I was about so to say, pick your battle down there. Right? Yeah, Wilderness, absolutely. Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg. Right, you can't <laughs> swing a stick without hitting the battlefield. So. You're right. Right. <laughs> Uh, so you had mentioned that you you have only briefly been at Belvoir. So so walk us through a little bit about your your time before that. Okay. Well, I'm, I was trying to set a record for the most satellite campuses <laughs> to be assigned to. <laughs> I, I think I'm tapped out at three. So and we like my wife and daughters and I like Virginia a lot. So I think we'll we'll stay put. But I originally started at the Redstone Arsenal campus in Alabama um, when I first started teaching for the Army. Um, and I was there actually just a short time, about a year and a half. So I was actually the original history faculty at the Redstone campus because that's when it opened. I was there when it opened. Um, and then I took a, a brief, about three-year interlude to, uh, as I call it, my Indiana Jones time. I worked as a research historian for the what used to be called the Joint Prisoner of War Missing in Action Accounting Command mm-hmm. in Honolulu. Yeah, it's in Hawaii, yeah. So, and I've since renamed it. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, that was a great mission. I mean, this is, um, you know... A, a lot of what I ended up doing was research, a lot of trips to the archives. But what I, when I originally went, within a few months, I was on a field mission. We went, we spent about three weeks in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany looking for crash sites. And it was an incredible experience to go. I mean, just driving through a small village in France one day, we just stopped in the middle of the road. There was a lady standing there and just asked her if she knew. We told her we were American 
researchers that we were looking for a bomber that had been had crashed. We thought reportedly on the outskirts of this village, and she said, "Yes, I saw it. I was an elementary school child, and I know the farmer whose land it crashed on, and I'm sure he'd be happy to let you wander around in his field." She made some phone calls. The word got around, and at one point, it was kind of like being a celebrity. Right? right? People just start coming out of the woodwork, and they have parts of the plane they'd found and kept in their houses. One guy had a wheel that his father had given him. It was in his garage. And we just, we spent hours there being taken from one house to another. And it was a fantastic mission. Oh, yeah. A lot to, to be said for it. But I love teaching and eventually I missed being in the classroom. So I came back and then when I came back to, to DMH, I went to Fort Gordon. And I was at Fort Gordon for almost exactly seven years and then moved to, to Belvoir from Gordon. So, but again, that's been a good move here too. So Yeah, and, and we... Uh, the, the Army has recently consolidated the satellite campuses to where we now essentially have two left. Uh, Redstone is still open and Fort Belvoir is still open. And then we have satellites at Leavenworth, which is confusing. <laughs> right. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh, so you, you've talked about the advantages of being where you are. Um, talk a little bit about the, the kind of the mini community you have, because you're not the only historian at Fort Belvoir. Right, it is. I mean, it is different than what, you know, I had at Gordon and Redstone, because those are single teaching teams. And so your colleagues are not, which is, you know, as advantages and disadvantages, but my colleagues were all from all the other departments. Right, right. Which is still the case at Belvoir, too. But we have two teaching teams, excuse me, two teaching teams at Belvoir. And so Dr. Zach Fry is the other faculty member on Team 30, so we have two teams there. So it is, it, it's, a, it's a nice balance because on our office, so it's all the Team 29 faculty. I have sort of a similar environment to what I'd had at Redstone and Gordon where I mix with the, all the DJBO and DTAC and, you know, DFSM and all those folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, uh, Zach and I can go out to lunch and talk history, too. And it is nice to have a history colleague that we can talk about grading critical reviews or... You know, how, how do you approach Clausewitz or how do you approach the Civil War or whatever? And, and we have different specialties, and Zach's a fantastic Civil War historian, so mm-hmm. I like to pick his brain about you know, And I'm, not, I'm a Second World War guy, so it's nice right. to have somebody that does something different that can, you know, kind of we can help each other a little bit. Right. So. No, that certainly makes sense. What, what kind of challenges do you face, both kind of from a teaching perspective and a, and a, a DMH perspective, being away from the mothership? Well, I mean, I think one of the things I think we, uh, well, speak for me anyway, that I feel there is I, I do feel like we miss out on some probably some great hallway conversations. I think you and I, have, I think I've emailed you about this at different times in the mm-hmm. past. Like, I think sometimes just being in an environment full of historians, you're going to just by nature run into conversations that just spring up. Mm-hmm. That happens, I think, way less. Uh, I'm not the one that stumbled into some interesting conversations about where, but they're not. It's not the same as also having the opportunity to go see. 20 other people teach the class that you teach, and I mean, I shamelessly steal good ideas from anybody, so, and, uh, you know, and I can do that with Zach a little bit, which is great, because Zach's a good teacher, so it's fun to, to, to look at his class, but, and not that you can't steal, you know, see, see other I, ideas from folks who don't teach the same things, but my point is that I think you do miss that on a bit, on the, the camaraderie and the interchange between other, other historians, right? No, that um, certainly makes sense. Uh, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, what would you say your favorite story from history is? Oh, goodness. Um, I would say um, at least one of my favorites was from uh, my master's thesis was on German and Italian POWs in Missouri, and I actually did some oral history research for that. And I found a, a gentleman who'd been a camp guard at a, at a small town camp, for first for Italians and later for Germans. Uh, it was in uh, the town of Louisiana in the state of Missouri. Okay. Go figure. And, and that, yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, he told me this um, uh, 
incredible story about apparently one night a, a man comes running down the street in the middle of the night, one of the local townspeople, claiming there were German POWs chasing him. And it turns out a, a German POW had, two of them apparently had escaped from the camp. One of them was having affair, an affair with a man's wife, and he had come home late from work, caught them. The other POW, I don't know what he was doing out in the yard or something. So the POWs take off running. He thinks they're after him. He's frightened. He runs to the camp guards. Anyway, they go to investigate, found a well-worn path underneath the gates coming and going from the POW camp. And, and this man was a guard there, so he, he thought it was pretty funny, too, I guess, at the time. But right. and the way he told the story was pretty entertaining. So that's what I always reflect on was just the sort of the really sometimes really humorous stuff you come across when in you know in research so. mm -hmm. yeah and you've 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 researched something very interesting i think that most americans probably aren't aware of um as you mentioned being from missouri ironic that you're you're now back here um, right, right right and i'm from texas so some of the same stories uh, with axis pow's so why are there axis pow's in the middle of america in the second world war uh, I mean, the idea really, really springs from uh, the labor shortage, right? And so we have all these ships that are bringing supplies to Europe, and a lot of them are going home empty. Um, and then the idea emerges that, you know, we have this labor shortage in the continental United States. Why don't, why don't we bring Italians and then German prisoners of war to the United States, and they could, we can farm them out, no pun intended, <laughs> to help fill this labor shortage. Uh, they can go on ships that are being largely coming back empty anyway and it's easier for us to watch them because they're not right behind the front line somewhere mm -hmm. you know so um, and it works very well actually and uh, eventually the US government actually profits I mean financially profits from this arrangement because they would um, essentially they they charged the, the folks that wanted prisoners of war as labor the going civilian wage because they don't want to compete uh, they had arrangements with labor unions we don't want to compete with American right. labor so you're required to pay the same rate you would pay an American worker. But the only Geneva Convention says you're only obligated to pay prisoners 10 cents an hour, 80 cents a day, which was lower than prevailing wage. And so there's a surplus of something in the neighborhood of about $22 million. But it certainly helps with the labor shortage and helps pay for the upkeep of the camps and, and this kind of thing. So, How do you as a historian of this era square the use of these prisoners to fill the labor shortage in, in the same time and in many cases the same place as the internment of Americans of Japanese descent? Yeah, I mean, this is there's an, this certainly it's a, a, you know, a thorny contrast, right? I mean, because these... These German prisoners of war were actually treated exceptionally well, particularly given that they're German combat soldiers that have been right. brought here. And they're not, and, a lot of them aren't just Germans, a lot of them are Nazis. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And right, and which is still something historians are trying to parse out, like how many of those are actually, but a lot of them are, right? And they are, I mean, it's all kinds of stories about, you know, German prisoners being admitted into restaurants where African Americans aren't allowed. And again, you've got U.S. citizens. Japanese Americans who are placed in internment camps, and we got German POWs that are given a lot of latitude. Um, so, I mean, the the highest ranking officers we had, most of them were put in a camp in outside Jackson, Mississippi. They signed paroles, which was a common practice for a long time. Right. Um, but they went out and took long walks in the countryside. Some of them made their way into Jackson, which wasn't that far away from Camp Clinton. And stories of, I mean, apparently the people in Jackson were so accustomed to seeing German. Officers and you know Nazi regalia, but they didn't really think anything of it. So it just gives you a sense of how common that was. I don't know there was the kind of freedom they had to move around, and it is, it is a real stark contrast, of course, with the way Japanese Americans and African Americans and, and others.
folks were treated at the same time. So yeah, yeah, and a lot of the same. My background growing up in Texas, and you spent time in Central Texas too, right? What is it? Every median in Central Texas was built by a German prisoner, <laughs> yeah, something right. like that. Right, right. right. Yeah, right. it's a fascinating topic, uh, Dr. Mallet. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great talking to you. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.